Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's WeatherTech's WebNX Talks event. I'm Andrew Savage, Business Development Manager for Architecture and Design in New South Wales with WeatherTechs. Uh, before we get started, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands and waters on which we live uh, and work across Australia, especially the Wurrumwai people, traditional owners on the land on which WeatherTechs is located. Let's welcome today's guests, Dick Clark and Andy Marlowe from Envirotecture. I'll just do a quick bio on both of them. Uh, Dick is Principal of Envirotecture. Envirotecture are architects and building designers who focus exclusively on ecologically sustainable and culturally appropriate buildings. Uh, Dick holds a Master of Sustainable Futures degree and is Director of Sustainability for the Building Designers Association. He, Dick advises and is a contributing author for the Australian Government's highly acclaimed Your Home Design Guide and has represented the BDA on various national rating tool committees and is currently on the BASICS reference group in New South Wales. Andy is a Director of Envirotecture. Andy Marlowe holds both bachelor's and master's degrees in architecture. Andy's a certified passive house designer and is a regular speaker at conferences on sustainability, design principles, material specification, community engagement, and the future of our cities, including the national conferences of both the Planning Institute of Australia and the Green Building Council of Australia. So we have very highly qualified guests today. Um, so welcome, Andy and Dick. Uh, so let's get started. Um, Dick, Andy and their colleagues at Envirotecture have carved out a reputation as the main go-to passive house design practice in New South Wales, having designed three of the six certified passive houses, uh, passive house projects built to date in New South Wales. So Andy, we'll start with you. What is passive house? Thanks, Andrew. Um, Passive House is fundamentally a quality assurance scheme. Um, it happens to deliver extremely healthy, comfortable, and also efficient buildings. Um, but it does that through this uh, the process that it sets up, which is a science-based um, science-based one that is verified by a third-party um, Passive House certifier, who's completely independent of the project team. So it's a really reliable way to make sure you get a healthy, comfortable home, um, really in terms of getting what you pay for and, um, and you know, getting something that's actually nice to live in. It delivers wonderful indoor air quality. Um, it's warm in winter, cool in summer. And yes, it uses a series of metrics in terms of meeting minimum energy use um, levels for both heating and for cooling and for overall energy use for the building. Um, but primarily health and comfort efficiency is, I would, classified as a, a nice byproduct, but buildings are meant to keep us healthy. That's kind of the crux of what we do. Oh, shelter, isn't it? Building, and that's sort of one of our hierarchies of needs, if I remember my psychology training 400 years ago. So um, yeah, I'm sure we'll drill down further into the details around Passive House as the talk goes on. Um, but Dick, how is Passive House useful in our warming world? Yeah, thanks, Andrew. It's uh... The, the reality is that, that we're living in a changed climate uh, and it's changing further and it's going to change further again. And uh, Andy will probably talk a bit later on about how the, um, the, the tool itself um, can look forwards instead of uh, backwards in terms of historical climate data. Um, the CSIRO last week launched a whole bunch of weather data, uh, sorry, climate and weather data projections uh, so try and look forwards instead of just using historical data. And, 
And so this is the reality we have to design for now is, is buildings that are going to operate in this changed environment. And well, I noticed there's a, um, a, a question there from someone in, in far north Queensland, and it's fantastic. Uh, given the, the heat wave that uh, clobbered far north Queensland uh, two years ago when flying foxes were falling out of the trees, uh, basically dead from being cooked in the trees alive, um, you know, indicates that this is not just uh, a design process or a design approach for cold climates. It works equally well in hot climates because ultimately what we're trying to do, as Andy said, is create a safe shelter, a safe habitation space. And heat flows in just as much as heat flows out through the envelope of building, a building. So uh, it's extremely useful when the temperature rises above a comfort zone, and we all have different comfort zones, but uh, you know, once it gets above 28, 30, 35 degrees, maybe, you know, mine's probably higher than most people's, but uh, once it rises above that, we, we seek shelter. And, uh, and if we can have a building that provides that, then we're going to have a much more comfortable life. But on top of that, again, because of the bushfire situations that we're, we're facing, the bushfire smoke is another thing which can be controlled to a very, very large extent, not, not completely, but to an extremely uh, large extent by the filtering that passive houses provide. Yeah, so um, I guess when it comes to you know, adapting to uh, climate change. Uh, Andy, I think you had something to say about passive house modelling and the QA approach and, and, and the, I guess the value that adds in, in, in meaningfully adapting to climate change. Can you expand on that a bit? Yeah, sure. Well, so for those who have got a rudimentary knowledge of passive house, um, you'll be familiar with the passive house planning package, the PHPP, which is the piece of software um, AKA Excel spreadsheet that um, runs all the numbers behind Passive House. Um, within that tool, because it's an Excel spreadsheet, you can butcher anything you like, which if you have a vague idea what you're doing is actually really quite useful and can be very informative. So for quite a while now, we've been running our projects um, through the numbers using um, cl uh, future climate files. Um, we've actually now just revert, rather than trying to call them 2050 files or 2070 files or whatever we've just been doing it as plus two degrees plus three degrees whatever um as a climate scenario because we found that we got into a lot of debate about what a 2050 climate file was because it depended on a whole bunch of factors now we're just going in a plus three degree world this is how this building will behave and we're using that information because information is there's some wonderful phrase about it's only as useful as what you actually do with it um and therefore, we're tweaking and optimizing our buildings for that climate. So we want to make sure they work today or generally in you know, the 18 months when it gets built. But really, we want to know it's still going to work in about 20 plus, 30 plus, 40 plus years time because we like to think that our buildings will still be around then. So we use that data to drive those numbers. And as with any building, most people being professionals would understand that you know, you're balancing the need for heating and cooling on the, on the whole. And therefore, we're tending to um, balance the building to perform a bit better in summer. Um, and, and often that's a bit of a trade-off for winter performance now. Um, but we're doing that because we know that it's going to be um, a much warmer world. A mate of mine I spoke to yesterday was telling me that Sydney has just been through 15 days of plus 20 degree weather. And that's a record that hasn't been broken since 1879 or, I don't know, some ridiculous point in time for, for this time of year. So um, I think the warming world part is very much well understood. I mean, 
pretty damn hot outside today for August. My child just asked me, she's four, just asked me if it was summer. Yeah. Well, when they say, you know, two or three degree increase in temperature, when we have sort of very, very hot days, we're still, we're, we're talking about approaching 50 degrees centigrade, you know, in Sydney. And we, I remember last summer, we got pretty close, didn't we? We were certainly up in the mid to high 40s which I remember as a kid, if you got over 30 degrees, 30, 32, 33 degrees, that was a very hot day. So whilst we're only talking one and a half to two degrees overall, you know, it can still mean that we're pushing 50 degrees in places like Sydney, which, you know, is, is crazy. Well, this is the, come, so, that, sorry, Andy. That, that's, the, that's the crux of the argument, really, um, is, is fundamentally around how the buildings are going to adapt to those extremes. And, and, the, fun, and the issue we have with weather data is that weather data is inherently averages and yes you can put peak loads in but it's really hard to work that stuff out so the question really becomes in a massive heat wave how is my building gonna behave and what can i do to really not die because at those temperatures your body loses the ability to cool itself mm. yeah it's a it's obviously a big concern and and you know i really worry about the future generations and and how things are going to be for them there's some questions coming in uh tommy struger's asked a couple we probably already already aware that passive house is all about sealing the property and i know you guys do pressure testing to make sure the property is completely sealed and then having mechanical ventilation but tommy's asked what about airtight homes without mechanical ventilation um, ah, um terrible idea Okay. <laughs> Sorry, there's not much else to say. Um, you need ventilation. We're humans. It, it would be okay if you if you never closed the building up, but that kind of defeats the purpose of uh, locking out the hot and cold weather. So, yeah. Okay. There's another question from Tommy, which we'll come to a little bit later. Um, but Dick, do we need to live differently in passive passive house? Yeah. Well, that that kind of it's a neat segue to that that previous question and comment. Um, Look, for, for the most part, no. Uh, if you want, if it's a beautiful day, and, and let's face it, you know, I'm, I'm in Sydney today and it's, I don't know what the temperature outside is, probably 20, 21 degrees by now. Um, that's lovely. If you wanted to go and open the house up and sit on the veranda and have a cup of coffee or barbecue or whatever, not a problem. And, and it's important that the house is designed to encourage that kind of thing because for the most part, that is what we need to do and what we want to do, and that's fine. Um, so yeah, there's there's no need to to sort of live inside an esky and never go outside and become fearful of the outside world. That's not what it's about. But when you close the doors and windows, you know that it is seriously closed, and and that is locking out those extremes of of heat and cold. And then that's why we need the the uh, mechanical ventilation system with heat recovery so that we're getting fresh air and we know exactly how much we're getting. So there's been a bit of discussion in the, the architectural world recently about why, um, whether passive house is necessary in Australia and, and why the old style passive solar homes that were uncontrolled in their leakiness in, in terms of um, you know, air leakage, et cetera, um, you know, why that is not good enough. And I, I suppose you know, my question is in, in what universe uh, does it not matter how you whether you know how much air is getting into your building or not? Do you, you know, wh why does it not matter if you know what your, your CO2 levels are in a bedroom building up overnight? You know, these things are important. And uh, so it's, it's not just about temperature. It's also about health and, and human amenity. 
fresh air. And I, I remember you telling me that uh, passive houses are pressure tested compared with, say, your typical project home, which might have about a 50% sort of um, capacity compared to passive house at 100%. Am I getting those figures right? Oh, well, I don't know. <laughs> In terms of actual numbers, passive to, to achieve certification, a passive house has to uh, provide no more than 0.6 air changes per hour at 50 pascals of pressure. That's where the 50s come from, sorry. Yeah, yeah that's right. And, and most new homes are somewhere between 6 and 12, and 6 is a pretty good one in relative terms. Um, and the average Australian somewhere sky high of that around the 2025 mark. So uh, it gives you some idea of where passive houses sit in, in terms of their performance relative to the, the national average. Yeah, we've got another question here, and I guess it, it's talking a bit about, you know, how we achieve passive house outcomes. Um, so we understand that the house has to be very well sealed. It has mechanical ventilation. It's super insulated as well, isn't it? We want very, no, it's not super insulated. Appropriate, <laughs> appropriately insulated. Okay, thank you. And can you explain? Well, if you live in Sydney, you need less insulation than you live if you live in Threadbow. Okay. So um, okay. So appropriately insulated. Yes. And then that, that, that sorry. The, the insulation issue is is more about not having holes and thermal bridges. So the right, actual okay. R2, the uh, sorry, the, the actual R value of, of wall insulation, for instance, is not that much different to, to the best insulation we would put in any other conventional kind of house. But the, the glazing, the windows and doors are significantly better, not just in their, trans, their conductance, their U-values, but in their air tightness. So that we're basically trying to eliminate holes. And, and Andy will probably talk shortly about uh, thermal bridges, but, but these are the points uh, at, where usually structure is acting as a conductor, like a heating and cooling fin poking in and out of the building. Sure. Because um, one of the other questions, and you, and you mentioned thermal bridging uh, that's come through, is UPVC double glazing versus aluminium windows, which may be double glazed but without a thermal break. Obviously, that's not going to be uh, as efficient as we would like for a passive house. We need to have some sort of thermal break between our internal and external glass layer, uh, much the same as our walls are insulated. Our glazing needs to provide a similar level of insulation. So aluminium, it's interesting that it's so popular in Australia. Um, UPVC hasn't really been popular here at all, has it? And, and timber windows are also very good for insulation because timber in and of itself is a, a very good insulator and a good quality timber window would outlast aluminium probably by a factor of three or four to one. But that's another story. Um, so that I guess I've probably answered that question. Sorry, but um, obviously we do need to have decently insulated windows, don't we? Yeah. And look, the comment about... It's interesting, Australian, like the Australian market um, uses the WERS system, which rates the window as a combination of glass and frame together, which is a little bit silly because it's like rating your, I don't know, your car along with your, I was going to say push bike, but they're both transport. They're completely different things. Um, so you can have really great glass in a standard aluminium frame and you'll still get condensation on the inside of the frame. Um, you'll still get woeful thermal transmittance through it. So. Um, understanding all the parts of your building is probably the key to this, which should not really be an issue, but currently appears to be. Yeah. Here's another question, I guess, it comes round uh, to the way a passive house functions, and it's 
Um, how well will a passive house cope with a rapid change in air pressure, such as southern lows and hurricanes? Yeah. Probably um, about the same as a regular building. Okay, so it doesn't make any difference. That you've got a, 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 a completely sealed house. It's possibly well, going to it, perform better, isn't it? Structurally, of course, you know, it's still got to do all the things that a normal structure would do in terms of re um, resisting wind loads and uplift and so on and so forth. So no, nothing different there. But because it's got this resistance to having its insides sucked out, <laughs> if I can put it in a very nice way, um, you know that under extreme wind conditions, you're going to get less drafts. There's going to be, it's impossible to eliminate everything on, you know, in this world. I mean, insulation doesn't completely stop heat flow and, and what we call airtight windows doesn't completely stop uh, air movement, it reduces it dramatically, like, you know, by a factor of probably uh, 90%. Um, but that means that in, in a, a cyclonic situation, you're going to have a lot less air being sucked out of the building than you otherwise would. Yeah, okay. Well, that, that I guess that answers that question. So next question goes to Andy. Does passive house need to look like a box? Would you like it to? <laughs> it can look like whatever you like. Yeah. Um, they don't, to put it bluntly, Passive House doesn't care what the building looks like. It's all about health and comfort and a little bit about efficiency. Um, so it can be whatever you like. The thing that, the reason that they historically looked a lot like boxes, and especially in the more extreme climates that you get into, is because it's all about surface area. So the more surface area you've got, the more heat or heat or um, cool you will gain or lose through that surface. And therefore, if you can enclose your house with less surface area, it's cheaper because you've got to build less thermal envelope. So when you get into the cost arguments, which I'm sure will happen at some point shortly, um, then that's why they end up being boxy. It's because if you want to deliver it as cost effectively as possible, then you build a box. No one actually builds boxes. I've never actually seen one that's a perfect cube. And technically, of course, a sphere would be the best option, but a spherical building would not really meet the cost-effective criteria, I would suggest. I would agree. And we, we recently um, um, worked with you guys on a project in Strathfield, uh, which for all intents and purposes looked like a another heritage cottage in Strathfield with wonderful weather text cladding on it. And that did not look like a box. It looked like... a a modern interpretation of a heritage cottage, architecturally speaking. And uh, yeah, to, to all intents and purposes, it just looked like another house in the street, a nice house, but it didn't look like a box. It, it just, it, 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 it was, a, a, I guess, a, a project where you needed to keep within certain design guidelines and, um, and, and what was achieved there, anyone driving past wouldn't ever know it was a passive house. So there we are. So nice. I guess, that's a, that, that project's a good example of that, actually. Um, we've just put together a document which looks at all of our recent projects and compares them by the floor, the floor areas, the size of the building measured in a few different ways, um, which I would share, but unfortunately I updated my operating system this morning and it's not letting me share. But um, yeah, it's interesting to look at the size of buildings and then look at how much thermal envelope each one of them has got. So it makes a big difference to cost. Yeah. And before we get into cost, um, 
there's a question here, and it's a long question, but I'll just pick the, the, the eyes out of it. Mm. Is thermal mass important with passive home? And, 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 and does the climate of the location of the passive house uh, determine whether or not thermal mass is important? Um, that's yeah, it's a good question, and, and I, I'm not sure how many questions in the chat came up on that one, but I can see one there from uh, Mike Clever, and, and Mike operates in uh, a climate zone that is typically relying more on heating than cooling, uh, being um, a bit of Victoria and a lot of Tasmania, uh, and thermal mass is is still a nice to have, and typically we would do a slab on ground. Um, various reasons often because of building height and, and other restrictions but nonetheless you know slab on ground terrific it's a nice to have passive house does not demand it doesn't rely on it whereas classic passive solar that we've been doing for the last 40 or 50 years uh, you've really got to have some kind of thermal battery and thermal mass is the only cost effective way of providing that so you had to kind of get the thermal mass and you had to get direct sunlight into that thermal mass passive house is a really good solution where you might not have any useful solar gain at all or where the solar gain is very limited and the thermal mass is not going to do you any favours. Did you want to add anything, Andy? Um, only really to emphasise the fact that it means that when you've got a site that for whatever reason doesn't have great solar access, you can still have a really good building that works. Yeah. Um, the Strathfield project, which you mentioned, and another one that we've just finished that'll get certified pretty soon um, up in northern Sydney, both have the uh, north is to the street, which is not really what people want. They want their living areas at the back of a house, facing a backyard, facing the sun. And we're managing to make all these buildings work. I realise we're ending up with a theme of north to the street projects um, because kind of we, we can make it work. It doesn't matter as much. So it's actually quite um, freeing as a designer because you just you can play with the numbers and make anything work. Sure. Um, the next question uh, is about the cost of passive house, but I guess also adding on to that, someone's asking about retrofitting um, existing mm -hmm. stock. Is, is Before you go into cost, is that an option? Yep. Um, we've been renovating buildings ever since we've been building buildings. Um, it's the, look, there's, it's, it can be tricky. Um, it's all about the details, which is no surprise, but we've got a bunch that are, the, uh, there's a certification known as Enerfit, which is a passive house retrofit um, approach. Um, basically, it's the same approach, except they, they're a little more lenient with the air tightness requirements. Um, so you can have an air, air test result of one instead of 0.6. Um, but it's very doable. It's just a case of how it's hard. In, we've got a, about three or four terrace houses on the go. Um, and it's just tricky because you're trying to insulate things where you don't have a lot of room, um, but it's all doable. And you just come back to the question, why wouldn't you? Like, why, why would you want to live in a brick terrace house in a 48 degree heat wave? Because you will literally, that's pretty much how you build a pizza oven. Hmm. And then, so in terms of cost overall compared to, you know, you, I guess more, uh, I won't, won't say traditional, but your you more conventional style of housing. Well, so um, the short answer is it doesn't, if you're building a custom home, it does not have to cost, well, in Sydney, it doesn't have to cost anymore. In places like Ballarat, Hymere, um, yes, you need more insulation and there's a few other factors. 
Um, but we're talking, that's about upfront cost. The two key things with cost are, what's your baseline? If it's a code compliant or supposedly code compliant project home, then it's gonna be heaps more expensive um, because you're talking about you know, apples and cars. Um, but as soon as you're into custom design, it doesn't have to be a huge premium. And ultimately you've got a choice. You choose what to spend your money on. Um, you can spend it on fancy cladding. You could spend it on thermal comfort or efficiency or health. So really it's the choices, we believe it's the choices people are making. Um, they could prioritize granite bench tops or the health of their kids or both if they've got the money. So we wrote a paper on this, it's on our website. It's called uh, Passive House, what's it, what's it Worth? And it tells the story of the first one we did, which is in Thorn Lake. And basically that ended up, we made it a passive case. The client made some very smart decisions because they wanted the passive case. It was cheaper than it would have been as passive solar. Okay. Thornley, good suburb. I grew up there. Lovely um, suburb. <laughs> um, so look, there's a lot of questions here. Some are very specific. Um, Ian Cleland, if you want to contact me, I'll put you in touch with Dick and Andy uh, at the end of today's um, project because he's asking about a specific project which we won't go into over this um, uh, forum, but there, there are quite a lot of questions. We're not gonna be able to get to them all today. Someone's asking about thermal bridging and aluminium versus UPVC and so on. Um, but I, I'd be very happy to answer those questions offline if you wanna send an email to me. Um, so I guess just uh, finishing up, um, we'll go to Dick first. What does the future hold for Passive House in Australia, do you think, Dick? Uh, yeah, thanks. It, it the, the future, uh... I think long term is that it will one way or another to a large extent become the building code. And so one of the things we talk about to our clients is future proofing and what their horizon is, time horizon for the, the building. And uh, if as most of our clients go, uh, you know, 20 years, cart me out in a box, whatever, you know, we don't get many clients to say, I want to flick it next year. Um, but we always say, well, you know, you need an exit strategy too. You might intend to stay here for 20 to 40 years, but you need an exit strategy just in case something goes pear-shaped and you have to sell it. Think about what it's going to be like when you drop it into the market in five or 10 years' time. Regulation will be very different then because one way or another, Australia will have either voluntarily or been forced to adopt a low-carbon economy um, by the global trading situation, if nothing else. You know, even even if the current void of leadership continues at the federal level. So, um, you know, one way or another, it's going to be a very different world in, in 10, 20 years time. And Passive House basically projects your pro your project into that environment ready for it. So that's that's one aspect. Andy, do you have anything you'd like to add? Not much, actually. Dick's kind of summed it up. I mean, well, I'm, I'm going to hit you with a hard question then that's come from your mate, Mike Cleaver. Oh yeah. Um, he's 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 wondering about the relevance of the German passive house uh, model here in Australia, uh, and he says uh, still South Tasmanian clients want open doors with Alfresco Living, but we're not saying you can't have that with passive house, can, are we? No, no there's some, there's some beautiful projects happening in Southern Tasmania at the moment. There's a really nice hemp one um, somewhere you should go check out. Um, yeah, you can still open the doors and the windows. It just means when they're closed, they're closed. Yeah. So when, when that client is sitting inside on a, a cold winter's night and it's three degrees outside and blowing a gale, they'll be cosy. Um, they're not going to open their doors then, but they, they uh, could. 
They well, could if they wanted to, yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, come come February, March, when it's a beautiful balmy day and there's no wind, and and Tasmania looks like the sweetest place on earth, which it often does. Um, they can throw the house open and live as if they were in far north Queensland. No restriction, no problem. Yeah. So, well, that's. I think that's probably all we have time for today. Uh, if anyone does want to reach out to. Uh, Dick and Andy directly go to envirotexture.com.au and you can contact them that way and you can also contact me through WeatherTex and thank you again to Dick Clark and Andy Marlow from Envirotexture. Um, we look forward to seeing you next week. Don't forget to register for the Circular Economy Talk. I'm Andrew Savage and thanks everyone for your attention. I really appreciate your time. Bye now.